Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts Don Abernathy and Jeff Copsetta. What is going on? Welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite podcast, or your favorite World War II based podcast, I guess I should say. Now, for three years or so, you can say, well, Don, you're one of the only World War II based podcasts. Well, nay. Um, not that I'm concerned or scared, but there is another new World War II-based reenacting podcast out there I saw on Instagram. So there are some other reenactors getting into the game, but that's all right. There's plenty of room for all of us. But joining us, as always, from Texas, Jeff Copsetta. Jeff, how you doing, sir? Good, Don. Thanks for having me again, and, and uh, hey, all you listeners. Hey, all you listeners. And uh, you know what? Jeff was wanting to do this a while back. And uh, we were still playing around with getting all of the um, logistics lined up. If you're a listener to the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast and you want to show your love and you want to help promote the show, email us at info at WTSPWorldWar2.com or mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com or reach out to us through our Facebook or on Instagram. Send us a private message. Send us your address and your name and we will send you 100% free, shipping included, What's the Scuttlebutt vinyl sticker so you can put on your car, your truck? The only thing we ask, don't put it on the refrigerator in your garage. Don't put it on your toolbox in the back of your truck because, well, that doesn't help get the word out unless you have a bunch of people in your garage every week going through your refrigerator. <laughs> you know, obviously shipping and, you know, time and cutting and all that stuff, there's a little bit of a cost involved, which we don't mind consuming as long as it serves its purpose. So if you want to help promote the show and you don't mind slapping a vinyl sticker on your work van, your truck, your car, what have you, your tank, your airplane, I don't care, send us an email at info at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Simply send your name and your address. And if you have a preferable color, we can do any color you want. Um, You can include a color in there because all these are going to be cut to order anyhow. So feel free to send us a color and, um, and we'll send one out to you. If you prefer the Lucky Strike logo, say Lucky Strike. If you want the WTSP uh, stenciled logo, we'll send you that. You know, Bob's your uncle. We're here to please you. So by all means, send us any of your requests and all that fun stuff. And um, by the way, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com and pick up a shirt. We got the uh, K-Ration breakfast and uh, lunch shirts. I got to get, no, we have the, the lunch and dinner. I haven't rolled the breakfast ones out. And to be honest with you, the reason why I kind of, Waited on the breakfast one is it's it's brown it's squared it's really not that fancy or fun to look at whereas the dinner and the lunch shirts are a little more hip and and more interesting of a design but we'll get the breakfast one out there so you can get yourself the full set and also you can get the rest of our WTSP World War II podcast shirts over at our website WTSPWorldWar2.com and to get the last promotion out of the way go ahead and sign up for Patreon please click on that Patreon link sign up it's a dollar a month they take one dollar a month out of your your bank account and it goes to support the show and the YouTube channel. And speaking of the YouTube channel, um, if you haven't done so, please go to youtube.com. Look for digital 410. You'll find all of our, what's the scuttlebutt video versions of the podcast, as well as all the other nonsense that I'm into. But now that all that annoying and embarrassing stuff is out of the way, Jeff, what has been going on in Texas? It's been about two weeks since we've spoken with you. Yeah, it's, it's, seems longer than that i guess we've just had a lot going on um you know business as usual inspiring educating and honoring our veterans is what i do uh, between my day job and what i volunteer with and how i try to raise my children <laughs> um but i have a caveat real quick because you uh with your stickers uh-huh. guys gals, if you get a sticker here's a great place to put it go to your haircut place there you go i used I use two hair cutters. I've got uh, Vinnie Todd's in Marble Falls, Texas, VTV. 
Vincent Todd Van Valkenburg. The guy was an old Christian rock star, guitarist, and he's an awesome barber. Uh, he's got a sticker up in his barber shop. And then, of course, I use at Audra McCulloch, who's in Fredericksburg, Texas, which is kind of where I've been. Uh, you know, my my day job keeps me in Fredericksburg, not the wineries, the day job. <clears throat> and uh, and put a sticker on your haircutter's uh, mirror. You know, um, a lot of people sit in that chair after you and and they're going to ask. And as long as your haircutter is cool with it, uh, it's a great way to spread the word. Absolutely. You know, I've often thought about going on to the bus stops and tagging those because you got a lot of people sitting there waiting 20, 30 minutes, especially here in the city <laughs> with nothing to do. But how has COVID affected the way um, you guys are educating out there in Texas right now? So it's not slowing anything down. If anything, it's ramping things up. Um, you know, the best way, I mean, let's face it, man, you know, the best way to get to today's youth is through a screen. Um, for you living history reenactors out there, the day will come. We will hit the beach again. Uh, some of you already are. I know I've got a good buddy that just did a really cool Vietnam uh uh, kind of a uh, uh, tactical, I guess you could say, um, out of state, and uh, so it's 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 starting to, it's starting to come back. Um, but really, digital, virtual. I mean, this is the way. Um, you know, I've heard from like sixth grade teachers that are reaching out to museums. Like, guys, history is just not pounded into our elementary school kids. Mm-hmm. They get to middle school, and it's math and reading and social studies is just kind of a blur. And it is, that's our responsibility. It's our responsibility to not only to, to educate ourselves about history, but to make sure that our youth has the tools to do that also. And that's what we do. We, that's why we do it. And I just had um, a thought, not to interrupt you, but because of what you were just saying. Now there's actually kind of, and I've never done it, but I know, I know there's a lot of groups out there who take pride and who've put a lot of effort into creating a um, school-friendly display obviously you can't take a bunch of m1 garens and m1 carbines into a school <laughs> environment so you got to replace those with more personal effects and things like that but there are guys who have gone around and who have done presentations at schools and sometimes it's in a class sometimes it's in an auditorium but i just had a thought if you put in the logistics and the planning like a month or two ahead can you imagine the size of potential crowd you can do a zoom meeting to you know, four, five, six, seven different, you know, high school classes across the district. You could actually, instead of doing one for one school or one for one class, you could do a Zoom meeting presentation for, you know, 150 kids or more and just blow it all out oh, at one time. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are platforms I know, at least all over Texas, that connect a lot of different schools with, um, with museums that do just that, that do a distance learning. They'll carry an iPad around and go through their museum and they're, I mean, it's live. The kids are right there in the classroom, you know, watching what, whoever that interpreter may be or, or, you know, living history actor, whatever, and giving virtual tours to museums, showing people what we've got, you know, or, or what that museum has. And yeah, man, that's, that's how we're going to have to do it. I mean, living history is not, it, it's just, it's evolved. It's changed. Um, and then, you know, I know, you know, as well as, as I do, we thrive for that 80, a hundred guys all together, you know, ready to do this huge tactical or this huge living history program, especially if you've got a live, you know, audience there, that's mm-hmm. what they came here for. They traveled from all over to see it's like an air show. Yeah. yeah. You can see a plane sitting on the ground. Yeah. Great. Look at that. Well, it's leaking oil. But when you see it <laughs> buzzing overhead, 
you know, it's a whole different experience. So, um, yeah, if you can't get out and go to these air shows, but man, if you can, if you can see this stuff virtually, I mean, there's, there's a lot of museums. I mean, you know, I don't know if I talked about it last episode, but you know, there's about 35,000 museums mm-hmm. in, in this country. That's a lot of museums. And, um, and there's, there's a lot, a lot of small of ones that are going out of business. We, um, exactly. speaking of the That's YouTube channel, um, back when we had Eric Hauser on the show, probably about eight episodes back, give or take, um, he drove down here from Tampa and he was, um, had just recently retired. He was, um, modern day active duty and he's also mm-hmm. a reenactor, but to help, um, really justify his drive over here other than to do a podcast in studios. I took him around Southwest Florida because we have the Iwo Jima statue here. That's made from the same exact mold as the original one. Um, we have, um, the Southwest Florida military museum and library. We have a, um, a statue over in downtown Fort Myers, uh, dedicated to the 82nd airborne. And so we went around all these different world war two things. And, uh, when COVID hit, um, the Southwest Florida Military Museum and Library, it primarily started out as a small group of veterans, um, old, old timers really, who had been through the system, who have gotten proficient with helping other vets get their benefits through the VA, this and that and the other thing. They would provide free meals for any veterans on Wednesday. And they just had this little unit behind Hooters. And what tends to happen is when um, veterans get older and they tend to die off, sometimes the spouses and the children who either don't have interest or maybe the spouse doesn't feel comfortable with old firearms in the house, they would start donating to this place. And after a couple of years, they had so much stuff that they ended up renting out an old grocery store. It it used to be a sweet bay. And so they primarily operated off of donations and then it's called museum and library because they'd also sell library books and this and that little trinkets. And, you know, they kept the lights on, but when COVID hit, um, they, they hurt bad and they're, they're just about, I think, sadly, they may be close to getting ready to close up their doors. If not, maybe try to downsize back into a smaller facility. Cause as you can imagine the rent on a place that's as big as a full size grocery. Now we're not talking like a Walmart, but you know, Albertsons, a sweet Bay, um, a Winn-Dixie, just whatever the local grocery store is in your neighborhood. Think of the rent on a place that big and you're operating them with volunteers and, you know, things like that. And so if you, if you know of small museums in your area, please visit them, sign that book, showing that you showed up, make a donation because, um, you know, there's a lot of huge museums out there, but there's a lot of small ones that were just guys like us whose collections got way too big or a group of guys like us whose collections combined were big enough that they were able to make a small public museum. And those guys are really hurting right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you bring up a good point. All these museums, all these smaller ones that are having to close, their collections are now being donated to larger museums, which is, is good and bad. You know, it's good because we know it's going to a place that's, you know, less likely to close down, um, you know, has you know, great procedures in place. So they wouldn't be a large, you know, mm-hmm. uh, museum, a lot of visitation. The downside is large museums typically already have such a large collection that now they inherit another thousand artifacts. That goes in a back stock and no one ever sees it. Exactly. So yeah, all you listeners, if there's a way you can get involved, I will lead you by example. Uh, a week ago, I was just voted in at a local museum right here in the town I live. It's a CAF museum. There's not a lot of museums that the Commemorative Air Force has, um, you know, within their squadrons. So we're really fortunate to have it. 
and uh, just got voted in as the museum director there, which is a uh, big news for me. Hopefully, big news for the museum. Congratulations! We'll some way, yeah, appreciate it. Do um, they have you know, a website just, or just, a social? Um, do they have a website or a social media imprint you can send people to? You have the addresses off the top of your head. Yeah, it's it's uh, Highland Lake Squadron, um, something like that. <laughs> Put you on the Highland spot. Lake Squadron Air Museum, something like that. You'll be able to find it. Uh, it's on Facebook. I don't think they have anything on Insta, but it's definitely on Facebook. Check us out. Um, it's, uh, you know, like I said, it's a pretty small museum, and it's for sure one of those that would be in that bubble of, oh, my gosh, it may not ever reopen again. So we've we've reopened. We're rebuilding. We're, you know, reforming what that museum is going to be for this. Uh, you know, it's a small population town that I live in. But, man, last Sunday when I was there, we had folks that were traveling – from one state to another, and Texas was in between. They saw an M60 tank sitting outside and went, whoa, you guys are open. Oh, man, coming out, you know, it's great. Um, so, yeah, Highland Lake Squadron of the CAF in Burnett, Texas, um, planning our air show in March of 21. So excited about that. Um, so, you know, like I need something else to do in my spare time, but I can't just sit. I couldn't sit idle. So when are you, you going to take a flight in that PT-26? <laughs> I'm looking at your website right now. <laughs> oh, that's it. That should be that. That's the PT-19. Oh, it, okay. Yeah, it says PT-26. Now, this is a heading, but then it says the PT-19 is our hangar. It's owned by the CAF. Right. Yeah, I got you. Right, right. Yeah, so we've got that. We've got an SNJ-4, beautiful aircraft. That is airworthy. Uh, there's an L-17, and, of course, a couple of years ago, unfortunate accident where we lost our C-47, but um, there's another one coming to us. Um hopefully by the air show in March. Um, so we've got another, another Goonie bird coming our way. That's going to be the feature aircraft of the squadron. Um, and of course, you know, if, if folks, if you're in this area, you know, there's a lot more, um, the, the Tex Hill wing and, uh, you know, what they've got in San Marcos, San Antonio, there's a lot of little CAF squadrons in this area, you know, for sure. Uh, there's a PBJ, which is a Marine Corps B-25 gunship. It's all blue called Devil Dog. That's based out of Georgetown. That's about 30 miles from here. So, folks, get out. Put your mask on if you have to put your mask on, but go get go see these museums. Put $5 in the donation bucket because, like Don said, you know, man, this, this stuff is important. There's a lot of museums that may not ever reopen, and you could be the reason that they do reopen and they do stay open. So, do what you can to preserve history. And that is HighlandLakeSquadron.com. You know, I was there asking you before the show. <laughs> no worries. I was asking about the show about the uh, Merrill's Marauders. And um, somehow I got into this. I thought I thought you reminded me of it. But now I'm thinking back of it. I think I was reading another book or came across something where um, it came up. Somehow I ended up going on Amazon and I ordered this little book. It's a cute little book. Not to be not to be cruel to the book, it's only sixty four pages, but I've gone and since have ordered another book. And um, once I read the more in depth book on the Merrill Marauders, I'll talk about a little bit on the show. But the interesting thing about this book is it goes over like the logistics of the weaponry and all that stuff that's issued. And something caught my eye. Uh, one of the things like in the reenacting community that people like to bust other guys' balls for is the uh, use of a of a Colt. 45 on their hip and they talk about how no one ever you know they weren't really issued that widespread and they had a yeah. table of the uh battalion organization of weapons okay and it includes the battalion headquarters combat team one combat team two not to go too in depth in this but just to give you an overall um 
between the battalion headquarters, combat team one and combat team two, you're looking at 928 enlisted men, right? And they had 35 officers. And so that's a total of 963 officers and enlisted men. Um, between all those, they had 139 pack animals because the marauders were, you know, going through Burma, mm -hmm. trying to fight Japan from behind. And so they were out in the woods. So they needed to pack animals to carry their equipment. Uh, machine guns heavy. They had seven, which makes about sense. Uh, machine gun light. They had six, uh, 60 millimeter mortars. They had 10, 81 millimeters. They had seven M1 carbines, 181 M1 Garand rifles, 624. Sounds about right. Thompson submachine guns, 102. Browning automatic rifles, 54. You know, between the battalion headquarters, combat team one, combat team two, you know how many 45 Colt pistols they had? Just take, just throw a number out there. Oh. Out of 963 men, guess how many pistols are floating around that battalion? Oh, gosh. I would say uh, about 100. Try four. <laughs> <laughs> so four four and that's you know a group of commandos if you will that's the merrill marauders one battalion they had four colt pistols so that just goes <laughs> to show you how now obviously we know from watching the pacific you know a lot of the guys had you know stuff that they brought from home and they had a lot more men than than the merrill marauders but the special forces guys uh combat team one had two and combat team two had two battalion hq had none <laughs> so out of out of close to a thousand men you had four colt revolvers floating around in the woods of burma so clearly, at least amongst the Merrill Marauders, they were not used that heavily. And so, yeah, and of course, you know, that can, that uh, when you're reading statistics like that can always be misleading because what your issue, what's on your, your uh, TO and E sure. and what's really out in the field, of course, is two different things, but you make a great point. I just <laughs> thought there'd been more. <laughs> no, right, I like, the, only, the only reason I went high is because especially in that environment, I would definitely prefer a revolver over you know, a, uh, a 1911, not that that's a bad weapon, but revolvers typically, um, don't have magazine feed problems. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Know, a little bit more dependable. Um, you know, because we, we yeah. focus so much on the Pacific and primarily the Marine Corps, you know, it's interesting to read these guys, um, seeing them in Burma wearing the army HBTs cause they were an army battalion. And uh, interesting right. enough, according to the illustration on here, they did use the cross-flap canteen covers. But this book is actually pretty in-depth. It actually goes as far as saying, you know, they used the light shade green HPT shirts, but more often than not, those guys were uh, preferred the later HPT trousers opposed to the early issue. Another interesting thing is they had a list of basic minimum, but because of the type of work they did and the fact that they sometimes were expected to initially spend three months out in the bush they were basically told hey obviously when it comes to ammo and water you have to carry this but the rest of it carry what you want carry as much as you want right. as le as least amount whatever you personally need to survive you carry and so they had great uh leniency on the um type of um you know they even said they could take the havers uh the haversack but most of them preferred the early musette bag and so it's pretty interesting yeah yeah so before the show, I sent you two screenshots, and um, uh -huh. I don't know if I would consider this a reenacting gig, but um, you know, a year ago when I was doing this, 
I talked about it on this podcast and the other, but I didn't get into details. I was just kind of cagey about it because I really didn't know how much of it would come to fruition, how much would end up on the editing room floor. But um, for those of you guys know, I did some background work, and it's for the Disney Plus series. It was originally slated to be on television. Now, I don't know if this is an indictment on the lack of people watching television now or the indictment on <laughs> their concern of how well the show would do, but it's, it's now no longer, it was originally done for Smithsonian Network and Disney Plus, but now it's exclusively on Disney Plus right next to Tom Hanks' Greyhound, and that is the TV series The Right Stuff, based off of just like the movie. And the interesting part is when we were recording, making this show, we had to shoot the scenes twice, one where we had the cigarettes in our hand and not smoking them for Disney Plus, and then the other ones where we could actually smoke them. And um, I really didn't, I did three days worth of recording. I did episode one, which is the pilot, and that was the interesting one. I think I spoke briefly of it in the past. I got um, cast as a naval um, officer. The scene is we're in a, um, we're in, Virginia at a naval officer um, club bar, if you will. And it's supposed to be a retirement party. They don't get into that in the show, but you just see a bunch of guys drinking and having a good time. And when I was there in my uniform, the second AD, the assistant director was walking around, the guy who shot this scene, he came up to me. He's like, were you in the service? I was like, no, sir. He's like, well, you just look natural in that uniform. I was like, well, this is what I do. I'm a World War II reenactor. I spend my weekends wearing you know, quote unquote, vintage military uniforms. He's like, World War II reenacting. I think it was English. He said, I didn't know that was a thing. I was like, oh yeah. And he's like, well, that's interesting. I'll, I'll come back to you later and talk about it. And I just thought he's just being nice to the actors and whatever. And he left and did his director things. And believe it or not, at lunch, he tracked me down and we talked about it for a while. And when we shot the scene, it was in Orlando. It was at a, a country club. They took a, um, the bar at this country club. And it was really cool because this takes place in 1957-ish. 59-ish, it, it jumps around. And so obviously they had to have set production come in, take down all the modern-day sconces, put up sconces and stuff from the 50s, put in the ashtrays, put in some photos from World War II because a lot of these guys served at that time. And they had these huge sure. panels of LED lights outside the window to make sure this, it looked like the sunlight was coming in. And in this scene, Alan Shepard comes in, and he's talking to one of his NCOs, talking about he wants more flight time. And his NCO is sitting, standing at a, a two-top table in the middle of the bar. I'm actually right next to him pretending to talk to another guy. And while the show just came out, it's on Disney Plus right now. And I sent you a screenshot before the show. Sorry about that. I had to hit the old cough switch. And um, as far as background acting goes, um, seeing this first episode is great. I'm, I'm in the background, a majority of it. I'm on the same screen with Jake McDermott who plays Alan Shepard. Um, I'm right in between the two actors while they're talking. You can see me in the background. And then when they move to the bar, you can still see me in the background. So as far as background work goes, I got a lot of screen time on episode one. And then maybe I'll talk about another episode. But then I went back for episode four. It was New Year's Eve. That episode I played a Navy, I mean a NASA um, employee. And there's a great shot when they're doing the, the countdown and the camera's up on the uh, stage. And there's all the cast and crew and you can see my tall ass, my head is just tucking up over the crowd. <laughs> and we're doing the countdown. And at the end of the episode, uh, they show one of the astronauts' wives leaning up against the bar. And I'm like three people over from her. And kind of like the scene fades out with. So I got a little bit of screen time on that one. But 
as far as uh, and the reason I bring up bring it up is how I got into this whole thing was through reenacting. Um, back when the marvelous Mrs. Maisel was being recorded for Netflix, um, some of my reenacting people said, "Hey, they're looking for extras to play 1950 civilians in the marvelous Mrs. Maisel over in Miami. If you're interested, go to this casting company and sign up." I did. Nothing came of it, but when when the right stuff came around, I got casting requests. Originally, I got casting requests to go play a role as a uh, test pilot trying out for NASA, but clearly my ass is too tall and too old to be playing a test pilot, so I quickly got turned down for that, but then got called back for the do the naval officer thing. So, if you guys have Disney+, Plus and you go in the right stuff, and you're watching episode one, right around 14 minutes and 25 seconds, you'll see me drinking and smoking in the background of that naval bar, so check that out, and uh, let me know what y'all think of my acting premiere. So am I going to be seeing you on IMDb anytime soon? No. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I looked at the cast for the right stuff that episode, and there's a lot of people who are uncredited, but those are people who are in the acting guild. Um, I right. would obviously have to do more. You're basically with the fact that you had lines in uh, walking point, you'll be closer of obtaining a Screen Actors Guild credit long before I would. But I just realized saying that we now have a podcast where both hosts have had screen times in cinema and television. So say Absolutely. that. Well, I was on the History Channel before I did Walking Point. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So That was a fun episode. What was that History Channel? Too bad. It, was too, it was too cool to last. It was called Brothers in Arms. Oh. It was... Um, yeah, it was Rocco, old Vince Vargas, and Eli Cuervas from Black Rifle. Uh, it was the base. The basis of the show was that the, these two veterans uh, ran an armory up in uh, Utah, and they kind of got into restoring and um, demonstrating kind of these strange one-off military weapons. And one episode that I happened to be in was kind of the. They covered two weapon systems. One was the flamethrower, which I provided for him. And I'm uh-huh. You know, they restore this flamethrower and we, we shoot it. Um, and then, of course, or, or he shoots it, uh, Rocco shoots it uh, before they call me in, the client, to make sure that it's working. And then I come out and I make sure that it's firing the way I want. And, of course, it's some grand finale. You know, it's always some off-the-wall stuff. There's mm-hmm. stuff blowing up. And I actually shot like a 30-foot-tall inflated blue gorilla <laughs> with this flamethrower <laughs> laced with Tannerite. I have to look for that. On um, but the other part of the episode was really slick because I have kind of a uh, an infatuation with the 1928 Thompsons, and it just so happened that this particular episode, even though the footage was shot months before I ever got on set, was they were building and they were taking a you know a, a modern semi-automatic Thompson and customizing it and making it very ergonomic for today's standards and and all this custom you know seracoding and everything. And they presented it to Medal of Honor recipient Claire Romashek. So that was a really cool episode to be in. What was you know, his take on seeing that classic firearm all modern date out? Oh, of course he loved it. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they actually put him in the back of a soft Humvee driving around somewhere out in the salt flats or something and shooting at 55 gallon drums of diesel and, and Tannerite or something. <laughs> Just blowing stuff up. So, um, but like I said, you know, that was filmed months before I got there. I didn't get to meet Clint or anything, but hanging out with Rocco and Eli was certainly a lot of fun for, I was up there for about seven or eight days. And, Are They're in and, Texas um, too, right? Or are they in Oklahoma? Black Rifle. No, they're still in Utah. 
Oh, Black Rifle moved. Yeah, so no, they were up in Colorado, and as far as I as far as I understand it, their headquarters has officially moved to San Antonio. Nice. Um, yeah, yeah, which is which is really super cool. That's right down the road from me. You know, that's an hour drive. Um, so, yeah, for all you Black Rifle fans, um, Eli makes some great videos. He's a really fun guy to hang around. Um, so check out their coffee. You know, if you're yeah, just saying that. I just watched their third Halloween video. It was pretty funny. <laughs> this guy's <is> great. <laughs> uh, maybe we can get one of those on our podcast one day. Yeah, know? that'd be nice, right? Maybe oh, maybe get oh, some we'll uh, Black Rifle coffee love up in here. Yeah, I, you know, it wouldn't hurt my feelings. I do know a couple <laughs> of the guys. I don't know if they still do. I, I would assume they still do because after all, you listen to once, you're going to keep coming back. But I knew do know um, a couple of cats over Grunt Style who worked in a shipping docs were listening to the podcast for a while so i was excited about nice. that yep yeah hopefully uh, they still are you know um it's the winter time it's upon us well it's still 90 here in florida but next week and um this weekend obviously is halloween and all that but next weekend is one of the events that i've talked about a lot in the past on this podcast which is vke or von kessinger express and that's the one where uh, it takes place at the florida train museum speaking of museums and it's cool because it's not only is it interactive, but we actually have a real train and about eight to 10 miles of track and the public comes, they buy train tickets. And when they come, usually in the past, um, the whole museum is done up in Nazi, Nazi paraphernalia and you have uh, the mm. Weimar Republic and SS guys walking around, handing out papers, boarding passes and doing their propaganda. And as the train goes down the track around mile three, it stops um, they go out to execute a American prisoner in which they're surprised to see the airborne was waiting on them. They have a little skirmish with the airborne. The airborne gets on the train. Um, as the train starts moving, there's a scripted dialogue that takes place between the airborne and the officers telling them to surrender. Um, I got some cool photos on my Facebook page from back in the day where I'm like, going through the and the cool thing is they actually have some civilians there wearing like 1940 civilian garb. And so there's a reenactor who's he was an old man, but I looked through a suitcase and he actually had printed up documents of the VE rocket and like recording equipment in there. And I'm interrogating him and we're going around asking the real civilians if any paperwork, yada, yada, yada. Train gets down either end of the track. We get off and lo and behold, there's the Germans wanting their officers back. And then that's when the big grand finale, the, the reenactment takes place there. Well, obviously with COVID and all that, that was going to put a big damper on this thing. And which, speaking of museums and how they make their money, between this and the Polar Express um, that they do around Christmas time, it's basically where the museum makes a majority of the money that they survive off of throughout the year because that's when they sell the most tickets mm. for these train rides. And so there was great concern about, well, how are we going to do this this year? Well, Florida is 100% open, but there are still some safety suggestions in place. I won't go far saying guidelines. And we're like, well... What are we going to do about mask? Because there's a lot of events, you know, and rightfully so, guys don't feel comfortable wearing masks and this and that. But we got to thinking instead of doing the normal scripted thing that anybody who goes to this event has witnessed 100 times before because it's usually all the same, we've changed it up this year. This year, instead of it being a German occupied train going through France, it is now a German occupied um, tuberculosis hospital train. Thus, the civilians <laughs> wearing face masks. And then we are going to have uh, 
mask with bandanas, you know, air correct bandanas over top of them. So that one, and we're going to have a lot less reenactors on the train, but we'll still have the public, you know, reenactments where we're not wearing a mask. But the guys on the train will have facial coverings because they're afraid to get tuberculosis. And so there are ways to reconfigure your stuff. And we actually have some, um, Paul's doing a great job doing research and actually writing the new, all new dialogue for this thing. And so it'll be interesting next week and will be my first public event with the exception of what we did up in Largo, Florida at the gun show a few months back. So I'm kind of excited to get back out there and, um, to reopen up living history and uh, reenactments here in Florida coming up here real, real quick. Yeah. Oh boy, things have just been crazy. It's just it, you know. I was talking to my brother. I'm like, can you believe it? 2020 is almost over. And can you believe this has been going on this long? What is it? Almost we're almost nine months into this insanity, and it's still going. It's just so so crazy. So, you got anything else uh, you want to get off your chest uh, with the fine people before we? Uh, so casually take them into interview number three, the final interview with Jake Larson, the World War II vet. Uh, we're going to get a little bit more into um, his um, combat career and then talk about what happened on his long boat ride home and what it was like to come back to the United States in 1945 after being away for three years. So stick around. That's coming up next. Uh, I think we got all the promotions out of the way. Just one more thing. This episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, as well as all the other podcasts here at the Digital 410 Network, is brought to you by our friends at At Computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all of Southwest Florida since 2004. So even if you don't live in Southwest Florida, they can help you remotely as long as you have internet, obviously. So give them a call at 239-283-1120. That's 239-283-1120. Or head over to act-capecoral.com. And not only can they log into your computer and help you with any issues you're having, they can help you out with two-form authentication so that if you're trying to log into your work from home or you have employees logging in from home because of COVID, you want that to be done securely. Obviously, with all the work going on from home, there's more security breaches out there, so they can help you out with internet security. Um, And most importantly, online backups. Back up that data. Uh, If your hard drive crashes or unfortunately you get encryption, all your data will be safe. So give them a call, 239-283-1120, or head over to act-capecoral.com. Jeff, as always, where can people find you? Uh, Jeff Cupset on Facebook or at Jeff Cupset on Instagram. Thank you so much, friend. And uh, everybody yeah. stick around. And coming up is Jake Larson. And joining us from the phone from sunny California once again, Mr. Jake Larson. Jake, I feel like you and I are becoming good old friends at this point. This is your third interview with us. And you were just telling me before you came on that your life is crazy. You just don't get it. Are you getting requests to do a lot of interviews? Is your, your Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I went to a trade school after I got out of the service in 1945. I went to Dunwoody in Minneapolis. I took electricity and air conditioning, motor rewinding. God, there wasn't anything I couldn't do. And... Did you ever imagine you'd become a spokesperson for your generation at some point in your life? Do a lot of public Never speaking? Never in my... I, 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 I had to take public speaking when I was in the 10th grade. I, I, I couldn't even talk to my class. Sure. So the last time we were together, 
we just wrapped up the Battle of the Bulge, and you were telling me that you had something interestingly happen to you on your long travel home, but you said it's a quite an in-depth story that we should schedule a third interview, which we are obviously happy to do. Um, so maybe we should pick up right around the time of the ending of the war for you. Um, I guess we'll start nice and clean. Where did you get your notification that uh, the war was over for you and it was time to go home? There's another. Mine is so different from anybody else. I ran G3 at night, the night shift. Mm-hmm. On D-Day. we we got to go back to D-Day. Sure. And uh, the, the whole, whole army was running on adrenaline at that time. We loaded on the 4th, expecting to uh, invade Europe on the 5th. Well, that storm came in, and uh, it was postponed till the 6th. What does that do for morale? I mean, here you guys have been training for years. Some of these guys have been training for three years. You uh, take that long boat ride across seas. You're doing more training. The orders come down. Okay, we're moving. At some point, you have to find a little quiet time. I'm sure you basically have to accept fate. Okay, here we go. Tomorrow's the big day. Like you said, you're running off adrenaline, coffee, and cigarettes. And then all of a sudden, the thing gets scrubbed. Does that? How does one rebuild morale after that? I mean, because now you got to go through it all over again. A second night. Of oh boy, tomorrow's the day. What does that do to a guy? How, how would you feel in front of all your buddies there? Everybody is putting on a front. Mm-hmm. You understand? And when you put on a front, you you boast everybody. So so we're all in it together. There was no down. No down. We wanted it done and over with. We we wanted to get it over. We wanted to go home. Sure. Uh, we were, I, I was overseas for, for two and a half years there, you know. And, uh, and we knew we had invasion in our plans, but we wanted to get it over with. The prolonging of that thing, and they kept bringing supplies from the United States. I thought England would sink <laughs> from from the amount of supplies they had. You cannot imagine the the millions of things that came over, all kinds of guns, tanks. Airplanes. I don't know how they got them all made. Trucks loaded with trucks. It's just unbelievable supplies. Yeah, I think the logistics officers are some of the biggest unsung heroes of the war. I mean, just the logistics alone. Let's forget the fact that you guys are going to war and and all the things that are going to come. Just the idea of coming out of a depression era. Um, building all this new equipment, but getting it overseas via ships, via anything that floats with a motor, and 
just that in itself, getting it done with the least amount of confusion. I'm sure that things got misplaced and things didn't land exactly where they're supposed to, but even still, the amount of effort to go into that and then to have the VE mail separated and that being getting priority as well, just the logistics of the war and the, what those logistics officers were able to do is just still to this day, 80, it is, is mind boggling. To people that haven't seen anything like that, uh, and uh, we, we were right in on the on the whole doggone thing. It's how how did they ever manufacture all those gigantic planes, uh, those B seventeens? You you don't put those together just snap no. your fingers. Not at all. And you know I have the the. Um, privilege up in tampa bay about two hours from me they have the uss american victory liberty ship and i've had the privilege to um participate in events on that ship while it's out on tampa bay and when you're standing down there on the dock in front of that thing it blows your mind of the size of that but then to realize that that's nothing in comparison to the other ships and to think that you and your your friends and the people of your generation are standing on one of these ships and you look out and you're just surrounded by miles and miles and miles material yeah the world will never see that again in its lifetime and it's just it's just photos of the day just don't even give it even remotely you know the gravitas of what that situation was well that is and will be the largest Enterprise ever done in the world. That D Day, nineteen forty four, January sixth or June sixth, nineteen forty four. There will never be anything. Seven thousand ships participated. Seven thousand. Insane. And. and, uh, I don't know if I told you this, but uh, I worked on uh, on, the, on uh, uh, the D-Day invasion for uh, Omaha Beach. The ships that we were assigned, and uh, each one had a different number of, of people. I typed every one of those guys' name, and for for the work I did on that there, I got the bronze star. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, you know, the young kids nowadays, typing on a computer keyboard is nothing. Well, you're talking about a spring-loaded, heavy-keyed, stamping uh, typewriter. What yes. Was, and, and that wasn't a common... That wasn't a common skill for people back then, unless you were in, you know, the secretary pool. Do you remember what your words per minute was back then? My what? Your words per minute. How fast you could type? I I, I could type fifty words a minute, and, and that's that's about what those type typewriters were good for. Yeah. Just they, <laughs> they weren't made for speed. They were just. Yeah, yeah. You did. We did a lot of stencils. Yeah. With all oh, that, wow. put out a ribbon. See, yeah. Cut, cut the stencil. Oh. That, that's a, a, a kind of a paraffin 
coat of thing, and you just uh, those stencils are used on mimeograph. I you probably don't remember all that stuff, but but all all that stuff was printed with mimeograph, and uh, so I used to cut all those stencils. And if you made a mistake, you had them start all uh, over. Yeah, it, it, it's it's quite a thing. But I was blessed, making no mistakes. I didn't even have anybody checking my stuff. To think of it now, I I don't know how we would do it. Just a full bird colonel and I in there working on that. Uh, I'm sure you would have the echoes of the reverberation of those letter on the on the typewriter of those letterheads sl- slapping that ribbon that just had the you're probably trying to well sleep at night or during early hours whichever time you actually had the chance to lay your head down you you probably just had the sound of that typewriter reverberating through your head at all hours i couldn't imagine oh, oh I, yeah <laughs> and then uh, when we were in uh, the bowels I, I ran one of those uh, uh, electric battery-operated typewriters. That, that, that's a tele-typewriter. Mm-hmm. You're connected by landline to your divisions that was under you or, or anybody that... They, they had one just like it. If sure. I started that up, it would operate... So I could send messages over to them. Of course, everything was sent in code. You, you sent messages five letters at a time. Think of it, five letters at a time, XDREF or something like that, and and then enough space and another five letters, and you had to type them at 45 words a minute You without slowing down or stopping. And so not only are you typing 45 words a minute, but you're not even typing your natural English. You're typing code. I can only imagine how long the training had to take for that. that, uh, It it, it, it is something you you just can't just sit down and do. Sure. Uh, A couple weeks uh, to to, uh, really... But but I was proficient on the typewriter, too. Sure. So before I diverted the conversation, you were talking about, you know, we went back to D-Day and we were kind of talking about how you're prepared to go on June 5th, but because of the storms, it got moved the day. And so let's pick up there. All right. Uh, we knew we were going to go in the morning, so uh, I, I, I was on that command ship, too. And uh, well, I lost the name of it right there in my mind. Nah, no worries. But, but uh, Anyway, Eisenhower was on there, Bradley, and my, my, my Fulberg colonel, who was G3, he, he was in charge of Omaha Beach for his operations, Colonel John G. Hill. So uh, I was the operations sergeant. That, you, you don't find many operations sergeants in the service. And uh, I happened to be one of those birds. And uh, I, I had to go in 
with the first division because uh, I was supposed to pick out the command post. Well, hell, all hell broke loose. We could we could not go at a regular time. I was supposed to go in there at eight 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 o'clock or something. And here we went around in circles, waiting waiting to get the word to, to uh, land. The Germans were putting up a resistance. They wouldn't let anybody get up or, or over the cliff. So uh, it, it, uh, it was probably uh, oh, oh, pretty close to 10 o'clock before we got the thing that we were going. And when we did get in, there was hardly anybody moving. And uh, they had had shipped in some Bangalore torpedoes and they opened up this ravine, a trench-like water came down. And that's where we were supposed to Get get up over that cliff. It was loaded with barbed wire and stuff, and they shoved these Bangalore torpedoes up in there and and screwed them together. And, and two of the guys that were doing that at the time were killed right there. The Germans shot them, and. Uh, God, I remember that just like yesterday, and uh, of course, if somebody goes down, there's always somebody to to, to uh, do the work again. Another takes your place. That, that, that's the thing about the army and the infantry and all that stuff. It's uh, it, there's always somebody there. You, you're you're dispensable. Mm-hmm. I don't know how else to put it, but when you're in the service like that, you become dispensable. There's always somebody can take your place. And when they finally got those Bangalore potatoes in there and set them off, my God, that cleared all that barbed wire out of there. That's when the Germans cleared out from the... From the back of their armament, and where they were shooting at us, they have no protection from the rear. They're wide open, so so they they cleared out. It's just like open season there for space. Yeah. Well, you know so, that that barbed wire is kind of their last line of defense. You know they didn't expect. You know, you guys to make it that far in. You made it past the hedgehogs. You made it past all the MG forty twos, MG thirty nines, and then you made it up past the barbed wire. And as we all know, because Hitler sent most of his men and tanks up north because he thought Patton's army was coming up north. Yeah, thank God for that. You see, it's little things like that you put together, and that's the reason I'm sitting here talking to you right now. Think, think of it. I was in infantry. I was started off in infantry. I got the headquarters company. I got transferred over 
in North Carolina got transferred into G3. Uh, how many people do you think ever get out of the infantry and yeah. into uh, Corps headquarters and then worked on that stuff? I, I got the bronze star for what I did on that. And think of it. I... At 97 years old right now, I'll be 98 in December, December 20th, I'm turning 98, I am the only one alive in all the units that I was in over there. <laughs> and here I am, 97 years old. I don't have an ache or a pain in my body. That's beautiful. How is that possible? Did, How is that possible? You did something right. Uh, uh, no, somebody is helping me up from above. Uh, uh, I know it. Uh, I know it. Uh, 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 this is too un too unreal. And. Uh, uh, I, I, I tell some of these stories on TikTok, so uh, it's amazing. A little old farm boy from Hope, Minnesota has gone through this here. Why did this happen to me? Why am I still here? Well, somebody wants me here to tell my story. And uh, I think we'll have... My book out this year yet. Yeah, that's what you're saying the last time you're on. You you guys still have a working title for that or do you have you hammered out a, a Oh I got a title for yes, the luckiest man in the world. The, the, nobody else has got that title. Nope. No one. I I was having a thought when you were talking when we were discussing about how much that D Day relied on the misinformation that was done through intelligence. Oh, Ever. And through the the participation of the French resistance to put out fake, false information to make it look more realistic, years after the war, when a lot of this stuff was no longer top secret and a lot of this information was coming out, did you ever, was there a moment you realized, oh, wait a minute, so much of that mission relied on that false information being believable to the Germans that was there was there ever a moment after that te that information came out like wow I never realized how fragile that operation was that if they didn't believe in this ruse that you know the intelligence was playing that it would have went completely different. When when I was out of the service, I never gave much thought to anything I did except that I'm I'm alive. I I I got out of this alive. I don't give. I didn't give any thought. I had to have somebody interview me before I even brought anything up. We did not talk about the war. Sure, because everybody was there. There's nothing to talk about. Everybody was there. Yes, and you never talked about the war. I was never congratulated. Hey, thank you for your service. Uh, until uh, I I told people about no this is this is before the landing at Slapton Sands the Operation Tiger 
I, I told them about that because we had kept that inside of us for, for 40 years. We, we, we weren't supposed to talk about it under penalty of court-martial. We, we were banned, but it opened up. The British opened it up, and so I talked about it. Sure. But that's the first thing I talked about, about my service over there. And to think, I was in one of those ships that were were targeted. They sank two of those landing ship tanks there, those LSTs, right alongside of me. And they shot the hell out of the top of ours so that we couldn't get any fresh air. And those diesel engines were pretty dirty at the time. Mm -hmm. And there was 400 of us laying on the floor, vomiting. We were diesel gassed. This is something you, you, you'd like to tell somebody. Man, it wasn't just fun, you know. We, we, we were worried, too. And how, how we ever got back out of that there, and then that colonel come out and, and sworn us all the secrecy, otherwise we'd be court-martialed. That makes you think. Oh, absolutely. So, just to get us a little back on track here, um, you said in order to talk about the travel homes and what happened to you, we had to go back to D-Day briefly. Um, how does how do we make that leap from D-Day back to your travels home and the craziness that happened on that journey home? Well, it, 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 I was one of the first to, to get a 45-day leave after the Battle of the Bulge. I, I, I was in on the start of that. Because I I worked at night, and that's when it started. Sure. At at two o'clock in the morning, uh, on December sixteenth, that's when the Germans dropped parachute parachutists. Uh, there was between eight and nine hundred parachutists dropped, and uh, I can only give you the position on the map. It, it was it was. Position on the map was six. God, I, I, I can't remember the name of that t- town. I, I, I've been accused of, of making that up because they said that they'd never heard about anybody. This was a lieutenant colonel from the Vietnam War who was a historian, and he says, Did you make this up? Because uh, I, I've never heard of anybody me- mentioning paratroopers. By golly, uh, it, that uh, re- really bugged me. But Ridgeway, General Ridgeway, the head of the 82nd Airborne, wrote a book. And in that book, he wrote about those eight to nine hundred paratroopers that landed down there. So, uh, man, it, it, it's just like I'm getting confirmation from above. Yeah. Uh, 
you, you understand, there's a lot of this stuff that's not confirmed. But, but I got confirmation on that, see? And I woke up Colonel Hill, and I woke up General Joe at that time. And they pulled an alert. And that alert saved quite a few of our men on the line. I alerted the 1st first Division and the 29th Division. They were on the line. And uh, then we loaded First Army, and uh, here, here's a weird thing. They, they, they came in below Yupin by, uh, God, that, uh, I'm, run, I'm running out of the gas. No, no worries. There. I was just looking. Yeah, it looks like uh, the book was called Soldiers, the Memoirs of Matthew B. Ridgway. It came out in 1956 yeah. on Harper Brothers' first edition, January 1st, 1956. So you had to wait almost nine years to get any sort of confirmation for what you're telling yes. people. Yes, yes, yes. I was telling that story from my own experience, and people were thinking I was making it up. Well, at least you got your, you know, your vindication after all those years, and and finally uh, some hard, oh, hard I, truth came more out. More than that, I've got my life here. My, my, my God, think of it. No one else alive right now that you, I was even over there with. There, there must be something about my stories that that, that rings true. You, you can't make up stuff. You, it, it's hard to remember lies. Sure. And if you do remember, you have to remember exactly what it is. Well, and more often and than not, when people are telling the truth about a story, you can tell the truth is there based on the detail. Um, a lot of times when people are making up things on the fly or lying, you know, the details aren't really that crisp, so it's hard to track down. And, you know, and a lot of times when the real stories come out, the they're not as glamorous they're not as romanticized as the made-up ones. And so a lot of times, you, you know, when someone's telling a story and it just, it seems matter-of-fact and it seems less than, you know, exciting or amazing, then it tends to be the truth because they're not trying to embellish it and make it more than it actually was. Ah, uh, the name of that place came back. Melbourne. Melbourne. The yep. Melbourne Massacre. My God, yes. That's that's where that Piper, Colonel or General, I think he was a Colonel, leading those tanks. And they had the big ones. And those was the SS division that came through Melbourne. They had captured about a hundred engineers or ninety something like that, and. They were taken prisoners, so they lined them up in the ditch with their hands over their head, snowing. It was snowing, and as the tanks drove by, <laughs> those people lined up, giving themselves up. They shot them with those machine guns, thirty caliber machine guns. Uh, 
they they call that the Malbany Massacre. Uh, then had a terrific frost, and when we had troops go in there and pick up those dead, those guys were sprawled in every position like spiders. What a sad thing to see your buddies fighting for the same thing you are and giving their life up with their hands in the air. That's a hard thing to take. Yeah, I mean, because obviously when, when you find them with their, you know, in that position, that just goes to show that they weren't putting up a fight. That it was just a waste. It was a massacre, as the name implied. There was, it was a Malbundy massacre. There was no yeah. no even effort to acknowledge the Geneva Convention. And so it's just, it's a, it was oh, a war crime. It, it was a straight-up war crime. Yeah. But but, but what was life to Hitler? A means to an end. Nothing. The only thing he was trying to do was get his way. He was the supreme. He was God already. He kicked God out the out the door. Mm-hmm. Oh. And so it's two a.m. Yeah, you just got your forty-eight hour leave. And um, forty forty six hours <laughs> after the Battle of the Bulls, I I got a forty five day leave. Oh, forty five days to go back to the states. <laughs> after three years over there, well, nearly nearly three years. I think it's a month short there, but uh, that's close enough to three years for me. Sure, but. Uh, I had 127 points, and that that's when uh, I, I had the mo- most of anybody there. So I got in on the 45 days. Now, now here's strange things happened to me. Uh, I, I got got on a, a train there, and. Uh, Went down to uh, uh, to France, no, La Havre, La Havre, France. That was a submarine station there, German submarines. They had quonsets that that they housed the things. I came in at eleven o'clock at night and was directed to to, to uh, this quonset, and they said, "Take the first bed." I had the underwear on, so I stripped my outer clothes off and crawled in bed, shut the light off. Everybody was, oh, shut the goddamn light off, shut the light off. (laughs) You know, so I got in bed, and I was exhausted. Man, I was just about to sleep. And something was moving on my chest like it was jumping up and down. I got up, turned the light on, and looked under my underwear. I was full of fleas. Oh, jeez. 
wow, oh my God. And then people hollering, hey, shut the ambulance or shut the <laughs> I, I said, where, where is the supply sergeant's tent? And I said, hey, hey, get back in bed. He won't get up. He said, he'll get up, I says. I dressed, went down to the supply sergeant's tent. And, of course, he was sleeping. Sure. They always sleep in their tent. They they, they don't trust anybody to, to break in there, so they always sleep there. So uh, I, I pounded on that screen door. He said, what the hell are you doing? Get out of here. Go what? I said, I need some flea powder. Get out of here. I'll get it for you in the morning. I said, you go back to sleep. I'm going to find the commanding officer of this place and see what he's got to say about, hey, don't, 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 oh, I'll get up. I'll get you your flea powder. So I got the flea powder, and then after I powdered myself and my bed and everything, then these other guys said, hey, can, can we borrow that? Nope. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The guys hollering, shut the light off. So... Uh, by God, got, got some sleep. So prior to then, this, you worked G3 at night. You were in the Battle of the Bulge. It's super cold. So you finally get a 45-day leave, and here's your first opportunity to get a night's sleep where you're not working, have a bed instead of a cot or a foxhole, depending on where you were previously sleeping, and you can't even enjoy your first night in a in a bed because of fleas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Think of it. For, for six months, we're going from town to town. Never had lice or fleas or anything. And here you come to some place that's operated by the Americans. They they took over the from from the Germans there. They they, they took over La Harve, and they, they didn't take care of the flea part problem. I couldn't have been the first one to have it. Sure. <laughs> that is kind of disgusting, you know, <laughs> when you come there to, to an American place yep. run by American and have that happen. So uh, it, it took a while, but then a Liberty, about two days, a Liberty ship came down and. Uh, by golly, I, I, I volunteered for to be the mess sergeant on there. All, all I did was make uh, ice cream and coffee. But uh, b- before that happened, I'm there, and there's wounded from the Battle of the Bulls being put on that ship, and they're loading it up. And, and, and we haul... Two roads for sure, back to England, uh, of wounded. This also, uh, see, this is off of my 45 days. By 45 days, start after I get to Fort Snelling in Minnesota. Really? So it doesn't start when you leave your assigned post? It actually starts when your feet get on American soil? me 51 days to get to Minnesota. Wow. 
51 days from See, the Battle of the Balls. She had like, when it was all said and done, you're looking down the barrel of a 100-day leave. I'm just enjoying life on that Liberty ship. Of course, a submarine or anything could pick me up and everything. Who gave a damn about a submarine at this time? Yep. You were going home. <laughs> but, uh, and a strange thing happened when I got to Fort Snelling. I told you about having two cousins, and we went into war together in February 10th. We were put into federal service and sent down to Camp Claiborne. Mm -hmm. They stayed in Company F. My cousin Ole then went in on North Africa, and then went in on Sicily, and then went into Italy. Wow. And he got a leave from there. So he, he was basically now, there for the whole Mediterranean this. campaign. I, I, I got my leave from Belgium and then came back across the Atlantic. In the morning, I was sitting by a pole waiting for, for him to call my name out. Ole came and he says, Jake, is that you? Here we met at Fort Snelling three, three years after we were in the service and parted. Now, how in the world is that possible? How is that possible? Yeah, I mean, not only end up at the same place on the same day, but to essentially be, you know, get leave or pointed out at the same exact time. And as you said, you, your your boat ride home took 41 days. So for all that to come to fruition, 51. To, to 51 days, for all that to come to fruition, and then you land at the same camp roughly the same time, that's it's amazing. It's crazy. It's it's crazy. It's it's like I make this stuff up. But he he got discharged the same day I did. But and and that was February thirteenth. Uh, no no April thirteenth. April thirteenth, nineteen forty five. We were the first ones of the first 12 discharged before the war was over, overseas. And that, that was a day after President Roosevelt died. He died on the, on the 12th. I got discharged on the 13th. What was it like to get back to the States after three years? I mean, you went in. And it was, the country was still I, in the middle of a... A it, 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 it was unbelievable. Full rationing, every, everything was rationed. You, you, you had to have a ration stamp to buy gasoline. You, you had a ration stamp for tires or anything. Flour, of course, food. I actually have a ration stamp book here in the studio. You, you, you saved, my, my mother saved lard. Uh, all of the fat and, and 
know, they, they use that to make glycerin for, for ammunition and mm-hmm. stuff. I, I never knew they did that stuff. But, but uh, yeah, yes, for, for I never got any recognition for, for, for my service. Because everybody that was in the service got out, and no one talked about their service because everybody was in different parts of the service. And it'd be like sitting down talking to yourself. And I would imagine <laughs> yeah, at a certain was, point, you guys were just at the at the place where you just you were kind of over it. You want to move on with your lives. Why we talk were, about something that you had to live through for three years? Yeah, that'd be like yeah, us it, talking it, about. COVID-19 for the next 10 years. No, we're over it. We want to move on. Exactly. You, you hit it right on the nose. It was, oh, talking about the service was overkill for us. We wanted to forget about that stuff. We, we wanted to, to be normal. Now, you're from a small town. Before the war, when you left, I'm sure, you know, you guys were just coming out of a the Great Depression are still in it. Had your town had, had your town gained um, financially, or did it blow up at all? Did was there any uh, more manufacturing going on in your town, or did it look the same when you got home? It shrank. Really? It really shrank. Yeah, and I'm not joking. Yes, we used to have two stores there. Two stores. Uh, a bank, uh, 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 pool hall, uh, a garage, a creamery. Creamery was the thing that bound the town together because uh, all the farmers milked their own cows and uh, brought the cream into the creamery. Here, here's an interesting little thing. In Minnesota, every little town had its own creamery and Farmers used to take the cream. The only creamery left in Minnesota that still operates is from Hope, Minnesota. That's where I was raised. Hope, H-O-P-E, Minnesota. <laughs> and it's the only creamery still operating. Wow. That's some longevity. Especially nowadays that, with that, things being shipped in from all over the world. Most of their, their their cream or butter to uh, New York City. It, 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 it's about the only number one butter that's uh, still made in this in, in this little little little, little town. And it's a hundred people. I don't think you even call them a town. Yeah, and and the fact that most of the you know the the young men who were sixteen to nineteen were probably off overseas, and that you know made it a lot harder to farm and and get Absolutely. the logistics done locally. Absolutely, and they left they left the farm after after they were in the service. See, see, I went to I went to. A, trade school for two years and 
I, I, I could fix anything, anything. If, if, it, if anything was fixable, I could fix it. So that's what you did when you came back from the war? You went to trade school? Did you yeah. did you utilize the GI Bill for your first home and going to school, or did you just? Oh no, I never used it used it for anything. The, the only thing I got out of the GI Bill was uh, helping me through trade school. Yeah, uh, I I got sixty. I, I got uh, my wife and I got sixty dollars a month. Where'd you meet your wife at? <laughs> most unusual thing in the world how I met my wife. Well, that seems pretty usual for you. Everything everything at this point coming home across the seas, you know. Yeah, you got to read my book. Yeah, but, 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 but I'll, I'll tell you anyway. Sure. This is part of my book. <laughs> I, I, I bought an Argus seat, seat 2 35 millimeter camera with, with that twelve dollars I got every three months, it, it, it took me two two years to pay for that doggone thing because I had to have a couple of dollars of my own. Sure, it, it cost that camera cost over thirty five dollars. People, if if they had a camera at that time, it, it was a box camera. Oh man, I just fell in love with the thirty-five millimeter ones, and this is a three-two lens, you know, and a viewfinder, and a cowhide case. Man, I I was a dog in town. I'll tell you. Well, what people so, don't realize too is we're all. Nowadays, we're all just point and shoot. People don't understand what a aperture is, an f-stop tying, what a light meter is, and and back then, photography was a true skill and art. You had to know how to use your light meter, set your f-stops, set your apertures, and all that stuff. <clears throat> did you get into the development of film at all? Uh, oh, I did. Yeah, <laughs> I ordered film rolls of film from Hollywood. You can get it. Cheaper there. It's black and white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I loaded my own can canisters under the tarp, you know, or something. See? Yeah, I took so, four so, years uh, of black and white photography in high school. I think um, this was in the nineties. My record, I think, from taking the film out of the canister and loading it into the developer tank was about 30 seconds. I got pretty proficient with it. I see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You, 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 get, you, you get so... So, so anyway, when I got to North Ireland, I, I, I got to talking to a medical major there, Major Joseph Ridgeway, and... He had an eight millimeter movie camera, not a wind up, had a spring wind, you know. Mm -hmm. And he says, Jake, here, as long as you're in photography, he says, if you go on furlough any place, come and pick up my camera and take it along and take take pictures of that. I said, sure. By golly, I got a furlough 
to Edinburgh, Scotland. I was in North Ireland. So uh, we have to go by ship to get into England and then it's a roundabout way, but I, I, I went to North Ireland, or Edinburgh, and uh, God, that was a great thing. So uh, I took a bunch of pictures up there for him on his movie camera. I took some with my, just with my one-shot camera. So I came back and gave him his camera back, he took and sent that roll of film to his wife. Well, a month went by, and I was on Sunday. I was walking around the camera. I had just taken some pictures of some swans. We don't have swans in Minnesota. Never saw a swan. And here's a pair of swans. And they're so elegant for the thing. So I took care of that with my camera. And here drives Major Ridgeway up in his Jeep. And uh, he says, I got a bone to pick with you, Jay. Uh I said, what kind of a bone have you got to pick with me? He says, the the last time you used my camera and, and took pictures for me, he says, who are those girls? Mm-hmm. I said, what are you talking about, man? He says, when you went to Edinburgh, I sent that raw film to my wife, and she wants to know who those girls <laughs> are you took pictures of. Whoops. Oh, my God. Oh, I forgot about that. They had a convention up there. And I said, my God, you never see this many good-looking girls. So I took pictures, movies of that. He says, man, he says, I said, you can't send that raw film to your wife. Get it developed here, and then, <laughs> then you can cut that out. Never the wiser. And, and I said, so I sat in his Jeep and handed him that Argus C2 camera of mine, and he took a picture of me in his Jeep. I didn't have a Jeep. I never was in a Jeep. Just to ride in one, being going someplace. But, but I never had one and never sat behind the wheel before. So when I developed that up, I said, my God, that picture is great. I can't believe it. So the, the picture of the swans and the picture of that, me in that Jeep, I, I sent to my mother. My dad saw that, and he put them in the photo news in Owatonna. Now, I I didn't know the end of this until I got out of the war and met my wife. And by God, we got married while I was going to Dunwoody. And after Dunwoody, I had a service station in 1948. And she was pregnant with our first child. And uh, I, I came home at noon to get something to eat. And I went in to wash on, 
wash up, and she had her wallet out. She was changing wallets. And on the, uh, on the top of that desk there, there was that picture from the me in that Jeep <laughs> taken in North Ireland. I was 19 years old. Hey, where did you get the... She says, I, I was a sophomore in high school when that picture came out. I cut it out and put it in my wallet. I, you put it in your wallet. What you put it... She says, my girlfriend says, who is that guy? And my wife said, so help me God, this is the truth. She says, that's the guy I'm going to marry. Wow. All those years later, she still had it. All those years later, yeah. I'll tell you, our marriage, I would not be here today if it weren't for my wife. We had a place. We we owned our own. I was sixty-seven years old when she said, "Father, father." When she called me father, anything she wanted, she got. <laughs> father, I found my dream house. The dream house was this house that we're living in, that I'm living in right now. My two sons and I each have got their own place here. <laughs> they're, they're neighbors to me here, upstairs and right alongside of me. And we've, we've, we've raised their children. Your children are growing up now. But but I have a stroke here, and if it weren't for my oldest son coming and, and getting me, in the morning when my alarm went off and I couldn't answer, he heard it and got down and got me to the hospital. I have a little atrophy in my in the palm of my left hand, and I, I kind of drag my left foot, but it doesn't seem to have affected my mentality any. No, well, maybe not at all. it has, but, uh, but, but that, that that was twenty-seven years ago. Wow, seven seventeen years ago, I was back in Minnesota for seven weeks, and that was the last Fifth Corps reunion in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I, I drove up to that. I was up in Nisawa, Minnesota. I, I drove all over there and came back after seven weeks, flew back by myself, and uh, I, I was going through the through the mail at 8 o'clock at night and uh, my oldest son Kurt came down and uh, he just walked to the refrigerator and looked in there. Hell, there was nothing in there because I'd been gone for seven 
weeks. So he, he started to go up there, and I says, Kurt, uh, w- w- wait a minute. He says, you got a problem? I says, yeah, I, I'm getting dizzy. He says, I'll, I'll be right down. He goes up and got his keys, took me down to Kaiser in Walnut Creek. That's about 15 miles away from here. And uh, they started, the doctor started checking me, and I started feeling pretty good again. Yeah. And uh, well, but, uh, 10 o'clock at night, my whole family was down there. And my daughter said, Dad, they want to keep you overnight. And uh, I said, what was the reason for that? Oh, I think they want to put you on a treadmill in the morning. Stress test. uh, They they hooked me up and put me to sleep. I went to sleep. I woke up the next day 25 miles away in another hospital. I had six. I had I had cardiac arrest and sent up to that other hospital and they put six stents in me and said you have to have five more. Wow. I've <laughs> So I was shipped over to San Francisco to Kaiser and had five more stents. I got 11 stents in my chest. 11 Peep, I've been called a liar by doctors. <laughs> My father has seven, so I, I can believe you're 11. It's crazy. But I've got the best circulation of anybody in the world. Maybe that's the reason I I don't have aches or pains. Yeah, you're borderlining on an artificial heart at this point. <laughs> you got 11 of them. Yeah. In there. Fun fact about <laughs> Kaiser Permanente. Yep. I came through it. And I'm so happy you did. And just for a fun fact for our listeners about Kaiser Permanente, the hospital, as you know, back during the war, Kaiser was actually a ship and oh, tank building company. And, absolutely. And yes. They, they had so many employees working so many hours a day that they had to basically have an on site hospital. And so they got so. God, I'm that. Because I owe my life. I'm here because of Kaiser. (laughs) Yes, yes. So they went from building tanks and Liberty ships, and then after the war, they just focused on medicine, and that's where Kaiser Permanente came from. It started off as a on-site hospital for a shipbuilding company, and now they're one of the best hospitals in the country. They are top-notch. They rate number five in everything. Uh, all, all, all different things. Uh, well, thank you for re- reminding people about that. And uh, thank you for all that uh, you do, and thank you for coming on the show. And um, you said roughly around December, maybe January, your book's coming out, The Luckiest Man Alive, correct? Yeah. And obviously yeah, when that so comes okay. out, we will remind our audience. Luckiest of, man in the world, Don. Luckiest man in luckiest the world. Luckiest man in the world. Well, I will be one of the first yeah. ones to buy a copy, and then I will send it out to you so you can autograph it for me. Jake Larson, thank you so much. You guys can find him on TikTok at Storytimes with Papa Jake. And simply just 
Google Jake Larson and, you know, in interview one and interview two, I think you mentioned the fact that when you went back over to um, Normandy, you're doing all these press junkets with all these different news stations. Just Google it, people. It's there. As soon as you Google Jake Larson, all these news videos that he was talking about when he was back over in Normandy for the anniversary, they'll all come up. So it's all out there. And as always, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, find the page for this episode, and we will include some photographs that Jake sent to me last time, as well as links to all the pertinent information. Jakes, thank you so much for spending so many hours with us and sharing your story, not only with TikTok, but with my audience and the rest of the world. And I hope everything continues to go well with you, and um, things just keep on going on, sir. Well, it's keeping on going on. And I think somebody upstairs wants this told. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. And I greatly appreciate it, and I'm going to do my part to get that message out, sir. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, buddy. And it's always a pleasure talking to you. Always. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And a little secret, keep an eye on your mailbox, sir. I sent you something about a few days back. Actually, I ordered you something a few days back. It'll probably take another few days before it's uh, made up and sent out. But I, I sent you a little something to thank you for coming on the show. I, I think you'd do better by Pony Express. <laughs> well, it's custom made. It's made to order. So I had to uh, have it made. And uh, once it gets to a certain date, um, it'll get printed up and sent oh, out yeah. your way. It's not necessary to send me something. I, 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 do, I do this and so many people appreciate hearing from me. How, how could I not enjoy the letters I get to thank you for your service? I get, I get tears talking. Some of these people have lost their dad. Their grandpa, mm-hmm. their uncle. We all served in the same war, the same war. And if it weren't for those guys, I, I wouldn't be able to be here. They paved the way for me. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, and I will. Uh, I'll check up on you here and uh, periodically, and um, feel free to reach out to me when that book comes out. Sounds good, Don. Thank you. Sounds good. This has been a Digital 410 production.